This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. I think the true mark of a leader is, is whether or not he or she is able to surround themselves with people that are better than themselves. Uh, can they build a team that truly complements uh, their weaknesses um, and have you know the humility to walk into a room and say, guys, I don't know the answer. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, your emergency management podcast. And this is your host, Todd DeVoe. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you'd have learned that I'm a member of Team Rubicon, TR if you will, and I'm a proud gray shirt. I like to support Team Rubicon as much as I can. And right now, we, as we record this EP on September 10th, 2019, Team Rubicon is deploying members to the Bahamas to assist with the response and recovery. These men and women of Team Rubicon are taking vacation days from work to help others they have never met. I'm happy to be a part of them, and I'm also happy to have the CEO and co-founder of Team Rubicon, Jake Wood, on the show this week. Before I get into the interview, I just want to take a few seconds to remember all those that were lost on September 11, 2001. The day forever will be a great loss for our nation and a change in the world. The 343 firefighters and 37 police officers that gave their lives that day, and to all those of first responders that responded down to ground zero that are fighting their physical and also mental battles today. Thank you all for what you gave. Now on to the interview. So Jake, welcome to uh, Ian Weekly. Yeah, thanks for having me, Todd. Team Rubicon, uh, you all have listened to this podcast enough. You've heard me talk about the organization. Uh, I'm a member. I'm excited about it. And uh, I've been wanting to get Jake on the show for a bit, but uh, he's a he's a busy guy out there doing uh, great work. So, uh, Jake, I know people know about Team Rubicon a little bit, but I wanted to hear it from you. What was it like, and, and why did you start the organization? Yeah, well, um, you know, first of all, thanks for having me on, and uh, you know, thanks for being a, a gray shirt or a, a you know a volunteer with the organization it means a lot. Um, you know, we've been at this for almost 10 years and the, the impetus for the organization was the, the earthquake in Haiti in 2010. There was no concept of Team Rubicon before that moment. Uh, we, you know, it was not designed on a whiteboard or in a, you know, an MBA program, you know, semester long project. It was just kind of born of a, a sense of urgency and a, uh, you know, a decision to go to Haiti right after that earthquake. And, and we just kind of never stopped. And so it's just grown into what it is today. And that is an organization of about just over a hundred thousand registered volunteers across the U S and with actually with affiliates in uh, several countries around the world. Originally started off kind of uh, as a veterans organization and you yourself as a, as a former Marine and, you know, it was something to bring people together, bring combat people together to, to still continue to serve. Talk a little bit about that and, and, and what that meant to you and to 
the, the people that we're serving? Well, you know, for the first couple of years, yeah, we, we didn't really know what we were. Um, you know, at times we, you know, at times we thought we were going to be, a, you know, a hardcore international humanitarian organization. And then we went through a phase where we really more saw ourselves as a, a you know, a veteran service organization. And it, it took us a while to really understand that what we were building was you know, the best disaster response organization in the world. and and you know, there were a, a lot of pivots that happened along the way, but yeah, there were, yes. I mean, a core to who we are is, uh, our use of military veterans, uh, to, to respond to disasters. And, you know, one of the ways that we position that is that veterans are not the object of our charity. They're the agents of our mission, right? Mm-hmm. There are so many organizations out there that treat veterans like charity cases. They, you know, like, like they're sick puppies or they're, you know, you know, and, and that's, Listen, there are some veterans out there that need help. I think we take a different approach where we say, hey, you have so much left to give as a veteran. You are so skilled. You're so experienced. You're of such value to your community. We're going to give you the opportunity to continue to help, to continue to serve. And that's that's really where we see ourselves now. So Team Rubicon, one of the cool parts about it, it's a low-speed, high-drag organization that can get to places uh, quickly. There's not that. I hope you, I hope you mean the opposite. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like, no, it, it's it's definitely. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say low speed high drag? Yeah, <laughs> but, but that's that's what I am. I'm low speed high drag. That's because I'm uh, an old fat man. No, no, you guys are high speed low drag. Uh, that's always the joke. That's, uh, it used to be. Uh, I used to be high speed low drag. Now I'm low speed high drag. Um, no, so you guys are high speed low drag. You guys are able to get to places in a timely fashion. Um, you know, really nimble and, and you don't use a lot of, and, and I'll let you guys know, those of you that haven't seen Team Rubicon, you really have to check it out because, um, it's not like they're being put up in like these high end hotels or places like this. These guys and gals sleep in the, in the barns. They sleep on the ground. They go out there, um, and they, and they do it right. And it, it allows you guys to get into places, um, that others aren't. And you guys are built that way on purpose, correct? We are. Yeah. I got a funny anecdotal story. There was one time we, you know, this is early in our time. I think it was probably 2012. We partnered up with International Medical Corps and we sent volunteers to South Sudan. I'm talking like rural, remote, uh, forward deployed South Sudan. And I got a call from IMC's director of operations. He said, hey, funniest thing happened. Your volunteers just showed up at our encampment. And, uh, they were complaining. I said, I was, I was embarrassed. I said, what are they complaining about? He goes, you have nothing to be embarrassed of. They were complaining that the facilities were too nice. <laughs> and he goes, and he goes, I've been there. They are not nice. So, um, yeah, it says a little bit about who we are. Now, some of the missions that you guys pick up and, and it's, some of them are amazing. And I say you guys because it's really, you know, the, the, the volunteers that are, are active. You have heavy equipment operators, you got chainsaw operators, you got muck and ruckers, you got people now that are now doing some, uh, disaster recovery with, with one of the programs that you guys did down in, um, uh, in Harvey. Um, mm-hmm. how, how do you, how do you choose what missions that you think are important or what sections that you're working on and, and still keep that nimble lightness and quick speed? Uh, yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, we, we're working really hard to professionalize every aspect of what we do. And so we've, we've built out a, a very sophisticated capabilities development team that 
365 days a year. They are refining uh, what we're currently doing. So you mentioned a couple of things, heavy equipment operators, uh, chainsaw sawyers, uh, rebuild program. So we're constantly refining and looking at how we do those things better. But then an element of that, that department is also focused on what are our future capabilities? What are all the things that we could do in a disaster? What are the gaps in those services currently? Who's best in class? What is unique about what we bring to the table that might uh, allow us to fill those gaps and become best in class or to disrupt the way things have always been done? And so, you know, we're always thinking about that. How do we disrupt? Um, but it's also, you know, as, as an organization, we've really focused on maintaining the integrity of that, that core mission. Come in fast, help people on their worst day. We've done that by, you know, decentralizing our systems, by providing, uh, uh, a, you know, strong programs that, uh, provide consistent and professional outcomes. And then finally, it's, it's really been focusing on culture. You know, disaster zones are inherently chaotic. And a lot of times people, when they're moving slower, when you see organizations moving slow, it's because people are waiting to be told what to do. Mm-hmm. You don't have time to do that in disaster zones. And so, Done well, a, a, a strong culture should guide your people's uh, decisions and actions in the absence of explicit orders. They should know implicitly what to do because that culture is guiding them. And so we've just really focused on that. And, and you know, and this is something that's very, um, you know, it harkens back to our military heritage. Uh, you know, the, the today's battlefield, you don't have colonels and captains and lieutenants sitting there embarking orders for every action that's taken. You have strategic corporals and sergeants out there on the front line who simply understand commander's intent, who know, you know, their left and right lateral limits and know that they're empowered to make really critical decisions uh, within those. And so you have a much more flexible and nimble organization uh, that can react rapidly to dynamic situations. And that's what we've really tried to re- uh, replicate in Team Rubicon. Now, you, you've written a book called uh, Take Command. And it's it's really your leadership philosophy written down, and it's really well written, by the way. And I use it um, in my leadership course. What made you decide to to write this book, and and how does that shape what you do with TR? It's funny. I uh, I wrote that book because I failed to write the book that I wanted. Um, which <laughs> what that means is in you know 2013, I was actually looking to write a book, uh, more of a memoir on my experiences in war and, you know, really the founding years of Team Rubicon. I got rejected 31 times for that book. Um, but after Hurricane uh, Sandy in New York, Superstorm Sandy in New York, uh, I had a, a big publisher, Crown Publishing, um, approach me and they said, hey, Jake, we want you to write a book on leadership. And I said at the time, I, I honestly, I said, no, I, I don't want to write that book. I don't. I'm I'm two and a half or three years into being an entrepreneur. I, I don't even know what my leadership philosophy is. I I'm figuring this out as I'm as I'm going along. But I'd love for you to publish this 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 memoir that uh, that I'd like to write. And they said no. So I you know I took I took the offer they gave. I wrote Take Command, and and you know it's funny. I you know I, it, it was a it was a a thrill and a privilege to be able to write a book. I'm not complaining about that. But from the moment I it got published. You know, I handed in a manuscript and 10 months later, they published it. And by the time it got published, I was looking back through the script and I'm thinking to myself, my philosophy is already changing and evolving. Mm. This. You know, I mean, I, any leader should be constantly learning and evolving. But particularly me as a young entrepreneur, I mean, it was that that iteration was happening 
annually. And so now I, you know, it's been, or it's been five years since that publication date. And I, I look back at it and I just wish I could rewrite the whole thing. It's not to say that I was wrong, but it's saying that my thinking has evolved and mm-hmm. the body of reference that I have has grown. Um, and my perspective has shifted. Um, so I, hopefully I get another chance to, to write another one and, and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I was about to ask you when's your next book coming out. Uh, well, um, it's happening. Um, <laughs> I, I actually, the, the, the memoir I wanted to write five years ago just got, just got picked up. And so nice. I'm, I'm actually working on the manuscript right now. Uh, don't know when it's going to get published yet, but I am excited about that opportunity. So I, I think now five years later, you know, Team Rubicon has actually become something that people should read about. And I'm excited to tell that story, um, from the perspective I had, you know, from the beginning. And so really looking forward to it. I'm excited. Uh, it's been picked up by a division of Penguin Random House. So, uh, you know, stand by to stand by. And I'm by the standby. Awesome. So, you know, I, I know you're busy. I mean, you're, you're a young father. You got a, got a little one running around. You got your team Rubicon, which is going nuts. You got your writing, all this stuff. Um, what, what do you do? What's your, your way of, of going? Okay. I know I'm where I'm supposed to be. And this is, you know, what I'm doing. What, how did you get to that point to where you just knew this is what you wanted to do? You know, it, it's hard to say. I, you know, I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I, I don't know why. I just, I always kind of had that entrepreneurial spirit, whether it was lemonade stands when I was young or, uh, you know, various odds and ends I did in high school. Um, and it, it took me a while to see Team Rubicon through an entrepreneurial lens. You know, for a while it just seemed like a, a do-gooder thing, which is great. And, and then eventually, you know, it just, I kind of stepped back and I was able to realize that it had all of the, all of the entrepreneurial challenges that I was seeking, right? I mean, it was growing fast. It was changing rapidly. Uh, it had a profit and loss that I had to meet. You know, we had to build budgets and build technology solutions. We had to, you know, develop strategies, execute against them, pivot when necessary. Um, you know, do business development. Uh, I, I, I've literally earned, you know, my MBA 10 times over in building this. And, you know, for a while, I, I was kind of myopic. I was, I was short-sighted about what the potential was. I, I kept saying to myself, well, you know, I think I'll do it for another 18 months then I'll find somebody to take it over for me. And, um, you know, I'll go do something else. And then, you know, I just, I suddenly realized that I was only limiting the potential of the organization by, by thinking so in such a short-sighted way. And, and really instead started to, to embrace the challenges that were presenting themselves every day. And so I'm excited to still be here doing it. I, you know, I come to work and I, I look around at the team we've built. Um, I'm blown away by the quality of people we have and I'm excited about the challenges. You know, I, every single day I, I get punched in the face with something that I didn't expect mm-hmm. and that keeps it fresh for me. Well, Jake, let's take a quick break. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk a little bit more about how you develop your philosophy. Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, we're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication 
even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from the break. And thank you guys for listening. And without those sponsors, we can't do what we're doing. And, and uh, please check them out. Say hi. You know, tell them that I sent you. And so, Jake, before we went on the break, we were just talking about the fact of, of your philosophy and, and how you developed it. And I know that, you know, you speak about how you started when you were in college with, or maybe before, but you started with college when you were playing football, uh, of being a team player. And I love the fact that you say that you were, uh, you know, uh, just a, a basically an average football player on a, on a good team, and and you knew where your role was, and then you just joined the Marine Corps. Did that all help develop your your leadership philosophy? Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, my time in Wisconsin was certainly formative. Uh, you know, I learned a lot about uh, you know being a team player. I learned a lot about humility. I learned a lot about you know working your ass off, and and that's Wisconsin football. Um, and so. You know, that, that was pretty formative for me. You know, and, and it led me to the Marine Corps, right? Um, you know, the, and those experiences were, were powerful. Obviously, the Marine Corps is, a, uh, you know, a foundry for, for leadership. But if I think about Wisconsin, I, you know, I think those, those elements of humility, you know, I, I've always valued humble leaders. And yeah, I, I think sometimes, you know, people, they, they, they see me on, you know, podcasts or on, uh, you know, do a TV appearance or whatever, write a book. And they think, well, this guy's obviously an ego. Maniac. And, you know, listen, I, <laughs> I mean, I got an ego like anybody else, but, um, I'm humble enough to know where my gaps are. I think the true mark of a leader is, is whether or not he or she is able to surround themselves with people that are better than themselves. Uh, can they build a team that truly complements, uh, their weaknesses, um, and have, you know, the humility to walk into a room and say, guys, I don't know the answer. Let's figure it out. I, I think that I'm, I'm good at that. I can I get better. I can always get better. Um, but you know, we didn't build this organization because I, I only hired people who were the lesser version of me. I mean, we wouldn't have gotten very far. Um, <laughs> we built this organization by bringing in freaking world class people who, uh, every day I woke up and I was amazed that they were actually taking orders from me. So you were invited to the White House a couple of times. You got to, um, you know, meet the presidents too, uh, President Bush and, and President Obama. What was it like to be, you know, first walk in that room and, and to, to be having those conversations uh, with them regarding, you know, what you're doing, especially with all your <clears throat> history and being the fact of uh, being a Marine and whatnot. I mean, did it, what was that like? Uh, <laughs> I remember the first time I was at the White House, I was meeting President Obama and, uh, I was standing in this, this room outside the Oval Office. Um, uh, and, you know, there were Marines, uh, in uniform in there. And I just kind of remember like, you know, looking around a little wide eyed and trying to make eye contact with the Marines. Like, Hey, is this real? <laughs> and, 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 and of course these guys are there every single day. They've probably seen every, you know, world leaders, speakers of the house, you know, Senate majority, like they were as unimpressed with the situation as you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, the, the I, I didn't even realize it at the time, but I was standing in front of the door to the open off, Oval Office with my back to it. And, and when it opened up, you know, you could just hear the, 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 the air pressure change, right? It's, it's, it's clearly, uh, you know, a sealed, uh, room. 
And, uh, and I heard President Obama behind me, you know, with like his, his kind of deep, you know, baritone, iconic voice. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. You know, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was just, you know, being at the Oval Office, speaking to a sitting president, it was just the most amazing thing in the world. And I think one of, you know, and I've, I've met and sat down and had conversations with, with George Bush as well. And, and uh, I think what uh, what always amazes me is their ability to make you feel like you're the only person in the world. Right. Mm. They just they're able to just kind of have this conversation with you where you walk away thinking like they actually cared, you know, uh, and I've had that. I've seen that in other leaders as well. I've, I've met, you know, General Joe Dunford, you know, former chairman of the chiefs of staff, joint chiefs of staff, uh, has this uncanny ability to to remember the, the smallest detail of previous conversations he's had with you and recall them and make you feel important, even though. This is one of the most important human beings on the planet and has met people, met literally thousands of people more important than you. Mm. But he's still got that ability to make you feel special. Um, so that that was always really cool. I mean, you, you walk away and, and you say to yourself, no wonder that person became president. Uh, right. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So, I mean, obviously, the people who listen to the show are, are emergency managers from around the world and. and- even some that want to aspire to be emergency managers, some of the students and leading during a time of crisis is, is, is what emergency managers are supposed to do. What advice could you give to them? Um, you know, from one leader to another of, of, you know, in the time of the heat, in the time of the crisis to, to just really be able to make good decisions. What, what's that one, one nugget that you could actually give them? Well, you know, when you, when you, when you think about disasters, are you familiar with the term VUCA? Sure. Okay. So military term, you know, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty, complexity, ambiguity. It's the fog of war. It's thinking about it in those four dimensions, each of those similar, but slightly unique. And, and, you know, the, the, the opposite of VUCA is kind of like the, how you get through VUCA. And it's the same four letters, right? It's, it's vision. It's common understanding, it's clarity, and it's agility, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't always talk about it in those terms over here, but that's exactly what we do. You know, we 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 establish a vision. Where are we going? What are we trying to accomplish? You know, what's the commander's intent? And and that has to be clear, right? It's, you know, one of the you know the C in that positive VUCA is clarity. There has to be just crystal clear understanding of what the goals, the objectives are, what role, what what the roles of everybody involved are. It just all have to be clearly defined. If you eliminate that ambiguity, and when you talk about understanding as one of those, it's about how do you create a feeling of safety for folks. And, and but when I talk about safety, it's you know how do people feel safe to make the necessary and critical and consequential decisions mm. that are required, right? You, you allow people, you give them that that long leash to go out there where they're the closest to the point of friction capable of identifying the problems and, and most likely capable of identifying the solutions. And then finally, agility. I mean, the, the Marine Corps is built on this concept of improvise, adapt, and overcome. We have to have agile organizations. They have to be fluid. Um, you have to have people who are willing to lead in some circumstances, willing to follow in others. You have to have, you know, that ability for people to, uh, you know, stop and shift what they're doing, uh, you know, jump across teams, jump, jump across tasks. And if you can do that, um, and there's a lot of things that go into it, uh, then you can navigate those those highly complex environments that disasters present. 
all too often I see people kind of walk over, you know, break the glass on on some emergency plan that they have, pull it off the shelf. And, you know, plans are great. I mean, you hear, you've heard it a thousand times. It's like a, you know, the, the, you know, an old adage of, of, you know, the military or the EM community, um, you know, no plan survives first contact with the enemy, you know, right. you know, proper prior planning prevents piss, piss poor performance, right? There's all this stuff about planning. Like there is value in planning, but when it hits the fan, you need people who can deviate from that plan, make consequential decisions, lean into solutions, um and really win the day i mean that's what it's all about so true so team rubicon you guys are producing a lot of leaders a lot of guys that are coming out and gals that are coming out of team rubicon getting jobs in the emergency management space you know i I think that's an amazing it just says a lot about your the organization because you know people want to hire veterans and and also the just and the civilians that are part of team rubicon what's it like to see your people out there growing and when you, you know, run into them and they're, you know, running another organization that started when they started with T-Room. Oh, we love it. I mean, we love it. Um, it, it, you know, it's funny when we first got started, it took a couple of years before the emergency management community to even take it seriously. And some of that was our own fault. We made a lot of mistakes. You know, we're, we're humble enough to admit that. Um, but as we continuously got pushed out of meetings and, you know, standing on the other side of the, the wrong side of a closed door, uh, you know, no seat at the table type of thing. You know, we were like, you know, there's going to be a day. We're going to run a little insurgency here. We're going to have our people <laughs> placed in all of these organizations across the country, you know, and, and, uh, you know, they might be wearing their, you know, their county OEM hat, uh, by day, but they're in their gray shirt by night. And it's just kind of funny to see it happening. Um, you know, we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the solutions. We know that we've got a lot to learn, but I think there's some things we're doing well. And it's really been inspiring to see the team Rubicon brand on resumes actually carry some weight when mm-hmm. in some of these hiring decisions. It's just been uh, fulfilling, I guess would be the word. Yeah, I tell my students all the time when they're asking about how to break into the, the world of emergency management, and I, I tell them they have to volunteer someplace. And I, mm-hmm. You know, I, I tell them, you know, go to Team Rubicon, you know, go out there, get deployed, get dirty a little yeah. bit, understand what it is to be on the other side of that, of that shovel when you're, when you're out there and, you know, don't, don't be afraid to do it. And, and a lot of them, you know, they take up that, that, uh, that mantle and, and do it. And I think it's a, it's a great place for people to get training. It's a great place yeah. for people to make, and you make some good friends. You know, that's the other thing about the organization is there's some really great people that are part of Team Rubicon and you make lifelong friends there. And I think, it's a, it's a really, it's a unique place to, to be a volunteer at for sure. Yeah. And it, you're, you're right. I mean, our command and general staff volunteers, um, they are flexing their EM muscles way more often than any of their peers. I mean, they're, they're going out, not, not just to the largest, not just the Hurricane Harveys and Maria's, but to these low attention disasters throughout the Midwest. I mean, they've got so much muscle memory on how to manage this process in such a variety of circumstances with such a variety of resources, uh, cult, you know, cultures, you know, South, Northeast, Northwest. Um, it's, it's really remarkable to see how well-rounded they're coming out on the other side after a year with, you know, our IMT as an example. Right. I'll tell you one thing, I've never been hugged as much in my entire life as I have when I wear a Team Rubicon shirt. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah. Um, 
If you could say one thing to all of the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would it be? Uh, never take for granted what your job is and what it means. You know, that we, we often use the language around here that Team Rubicon exists to help people on their worst day. Um, and that's, you know, that's, those are the stakes. Uh, if you're an emergency manager, um, you know, the major, the vast majority of your career will be blue sky. Um, don't ever lose sight of that moment when it turns gray sky and people are counting on you to, to help lead them, manage them through to the other side. Um, it's, you know, it's every bit as important as being a nurse or a firefighter. Um, uh, don't ever take it for granted. That's really good advice. Last question. What book, books, or publication do you recommend to somebody in the field of emergency management or leadership? And I already talked about yours, so it can't be yours. I would say, oh boy. Um, <laughs> I would say pick up a subscription to both The Economist and The Atlantic. Um, one slightly conservative, one slightly liberal, both focused on big issues, none of which are emergency management. I think the one thing that we can all have a better understanding of is, you know, the, the real issues that uh, Americans and global citizens are facing every day. What we need in emergency management is empathy and compassion. Uh, and we only get that through perspective and understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, I'd always tell people, you know, like put down your, your freaking copy of the Stafford Act that you have next to your bed and, uh, you know, pick up something that actually helps you understand the people that you're, that you're serving in a way that you may not ever have thought before. Uh, cause it'll lead to, to more equitable outcomes. That's a great, that's, those are great, uh, suggestions. All right. Well, I can tell everybody, if you guys are looking for a place to put your donation dollars, I highly recommend giving it to Team Rubicon. They're doing a really good, uh, deals with the money that you give um, and the dollar stretch along with that organization. So I, I do recommend that. Jake, is there anything else like to say before we let you go? I think we covered it, my man. All right, then. Well, see you again. And uh, I thank you so much for being on. Yeah, thanks for having me.